Before we start, if you're enjoying these conversations, please make sure that you like or subscribe to Cleaning Up. It really helps other people to find us. Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation. Hello, I'm Michael Liebreich and this is Cleaning Up. My guest today is Francesco La Camera. He is an economist, he is a diplomat, and he's the Director General of IRENA, that's the International Renewable Energy Agency. Please join me in welcoming Francesco La Camera to Cleaning Up. So Francesco, welcome to Cleaning Up. Thanks for having me. So where are you at the moment? This looks like, a, it looks like you must be in uh, Abu Dhabi in the office, is that correct? Correct, this is exactly my office. Very good and very impressive it is. You've got some nice flags there. Of course, the last time we met was during COP26. That's, in, um, yeah, yeah. That's, so that I was trying to, to put in focus. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. Sure. That, that, that's right. So we met at the, uh, the Climate Action Solution Center, which I helped to set up. And uh, I initiated this marvelous project, basically involved renting a castle uh, and having some fantastic discussions. And we met during a discussion on hydrogen, as I, as I recall, that was our last meeting. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So let, let's do the following. Um, the audience for Cleaning Up is um, very varied. Um, a lot of them know an enormous amount about the topics, but not all of them. There's quite a few people who dip in. They're all concerned about the transition and about climate. Um, but you might give a little bit of a background. What is IRENA? So IRENA is uh, uh, an, an intergovernmental uh, entity. So it's an agency that's uh, uh, having uh, now 167 uh, members, members countries. So it's a, a really global organization. We have uh, almost other 20 countries in accession. So more or less the same membership of the, of the UN. So we are the only intergovernmental entity that is global dealing with energy and naturally focusing on the energy transition based on renewables. Uh, ARENA uh, uh, was established 10 years ago and the first focus was to make the case for renewables uh, going deep in the knowledge-based product, uh, making clear how renewables could be competitive. So our flagship report on costs, uh, how uh, the energy transition based on renewables can be good for economic and social uh, reasons. So our publication, the socioeconomic impact, the job reports. Then last year we published together with, uh, with the uh, International Labour Organization. So uh, supporting country in their planning, just to give a number uh, in the view, in the way to the COP26, we have supported 72 countries in preparing their, their indices. So we have, uh, and then we also started to work on scenario after Paris with our global uh, energy transformation. And then we move to first to uh, renewable outlook that we published two years ago. Then we went to the energy transition outlook 
The first edition was in 2021, and the second has been published on the occasion of the Berlin Energy Transition Dialogue at the end of March. Uh, and what is important that uh, in this scenario, to be clear, we are not making forecasts, we produce scenario. So what we do is working on the technologies, on the policies needed, on the socioeconomic impacts to get to certain results. And naturally, the guide for us is the, are the, the Paris Agreement goals, so the 1.5. Uh, and this is more or less our work. And now we are also trying to make a practical use, if we can word, use the word practical, of our knowledge base, our support in the, in the planning for moving more into the ground and also facilitating the matching between a project and funding through uh, two, two initiatives. One is the Climbing Best and Platform that we have uh, launched together with uh, UNDP, C4All in collaboration with the Green Climate Fund. And now with a new facility, the Energy Transition Accelerating Financing, so ETAF, that is an umbrella uh, where always we have uh, been uh, uh, seeing uh, the UAE committing uh, $400 million through the Abu Dhabi Fund for Development but we are also final, finalizing agreements with other entities. So we really uh, hope that uh, this uh, uh, umbrella may, may uh, leverage uh, 1 billion, more than 1 billion per year. So this is our, our, our goal. So this just in a, in a, in a nutshell, but uh, naturally, I, I, if you want to go deep, I will be happy to, to, to answer to your question on uh, what we are doing and, and others. Right. And there's a fantastic rabbit hole I would love to dive into, which is the difference between a forecast and a scenario. But I'm really going to control myself. You know me. I love to go after the, you know, the, 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 the fun stuff. But um, let's finish the, nut, the, the, the inner nutshell description. How many people have you got? You talked about doing um, helping 72 countries with their NDCs. This is the nationally determined contributions, essentially their overarching climate action plans. So you help 72 countries. I mean, you must have thousands of people, that surely means. Millions. <laughs> First of all, we have been uh, uh, supported by the, uh, the NDC partnership that provide also with some funds. On this, we have been working with, under, with the UNDP under their climate promises, promise. So we have uh, two big allies in our, in our work. We have uh, 130, 140 staff here in Abu Dhabi. We have 70, 80 in, uh, in Bonn, uh, in our uh, office on research and development. And then we have uh, a small office in New York because we are observer to the UN, and also we have a group of consultants that are working with, uh, with us. But naturally, the consultants are in some way embedded in the work of the agency. So we privilege the relationship with, uh, with uh, the member state. This is just to say, because you know, in supporting the country in uh, presenting the NDCs, we have not doing the work of that the consultants usually do. We have been really working together with the country so they can really feel the ownership of what they have uh, uh, proposing to, to, to Glasgow. Because uh, I, in my assessment at the time I was working for a government, Italian government, 
that the rush for uh, Paris was perfectly good because many countries presented the NDCs, but many of them was just the work of consultants. So they remain in papers. The country never really owned uh, the, the planning. And uh, this is the reason we have been possibly uh, not so ambitious as we could be in the implementation. Okay, so as a thumbnail, um, if you take the Bond Center, the New York and the Abu Dhabi activities and you know the, the, the average number of consultants, are we talking about three or 400 people at any one time? that come under your umbrella? Is no, that I, right? I think that's a, a more correct number. It could yeah. be something between 230, 250. Right, 230, 250. Okay, very good. And um, now, if we just go back in time to the founding, um, this was before you were um, Secretary General. So you, were, you, you came in after Adnan Amin. There had been a, a temporary Secretary General, Hélène Pelos, to start with. But um, if I could take you back um, in, in time, because I'm familiar with some of what was going on around the time of the founding of IRENA, what was really the kind of core reason to create it? And maybe it's the same as your mandate today, but maybe it isn't. But uh, if you could speak to that, please. You know, first of all, you have to ask to the founders more than me, but uh, as far as I can understand, was to uh, uh, to build a, a new narrative, uh, making clear how we had to move for a clean energy system. I think also the uh, the um, the uh, Copenhagen uh, uh, COP that was I think 2009 or that was not going very well, and there was a still uh, work. Uh, on, uh, um, on uh, energy that was very much focusing on oil and gas. So there was no really an institution, an entity that was promoting and sending, uh, uh, say, uh, right down the right narrative for renewables. So the organization, in my point of view, and, uh, and uh, you know, the country that has been supportive and uh, pushed for it was to uh, create an entity can can build a narrative or for a, a new a clean energy system based on uh, on renewables. So in some way, try to to start to uh, abandon the old centralized system based on fossil fuel in favor of a new decentralized system based on renewables. That I think that was the move. So give another voice, an important voice, to the transition to a clean energy system. Yes, and I think. Um, as I say, from my perspective as a close spectator around that time, some part of it was frustration at the time that the IEA was really not focusing on the renewable energies. Um, that is the period where the IEA was suggesting they would become you know, less than 1% of electricity kind of forever because they were so expensive, not keeping up with the cost trends. And I was a very vocal, one of the very vocal people saying, this is totally ridiculous. This, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, because if you say renewables will never be anything, then which sensible politician or entrepreneur or financier or corporation would really you know, put a lot of weight behind renewables? And so there was a lot of frustration at the time with the IEA, which, of course, today is singing a very different song. So, uh, you know, has the... 
has the original need for Irina grown or been reduced since then? I think that uh, uh, naturally the agency has been able to make the case for renewables. That's uh, and so the confidence uh, on our data, uh, on our report, uh, I think has uh, uh, transforming the sense of going for the renewable into a new culture. The now is uh, is culture that uh, everyone is trying to work on it. So naturally, uh, we have been uh, working and say very clearly that the new energy system was going to be based largely on renewable, so dominated by renewables and complemented by hydrogen, mainly green and sustainable by biomass, by energy. So we have been the first in saying that. So we are happy that ADA are finally joining on this. But in the same time, we are the one that have developed the methodologies, the models, the instruments for going from uh, the narrative to the concrete life. So offering concrete solution, concrete option to our, member, to our membership. It's not by chance that uh, we have been uh, the agency entrusted by the, the, the Africa to work on their continental plan. So why? Because we have models and instruments that's been uh, tailored to manage the energy transition and modeling the reality in a way that is closer to the reality itself. So we have been now able to, to uh, work on planning our world energy transition outlook is going to move to regional energy transition outlook and some kind of domestic energy transition outlook for the very big country that may look like a continent. And this has been recognized and supported by the, the European Commission and uh, other. So I think that uh, uh, naturally now there is a, a more common understanding on what could be the future energy system. But I think that uh, uh, the reason or having arena is increasing every day uh, because we are not uh, we are now in the best position, in my point of view, uh, to offer concrete solutions for the acceleration of uh, of the energy transition. Thank you for that, and and I certainly um, agree that um, you know you've you've got a distinctive voice some great capabilities. And I personally think that it's wonderful when more groups sort of compete with their, for their vision and some are better at modeling one part and some better at another, but you do get this kind of uh, knowledge emerges as a result of that. I do have to pick you up on one thing though. When you said we were the first to see the potential of the renewable based system and the first to model it, of course, there was also this little company until 2009 called New Energy Finance. Uh, which was going from 2004 in many ways on the same thesis. I mean, our thesis was it's a complete transformation of the energy system based on clean energy, um, that it will require policy, but that it will also require vast amounts of private finance. But we were working on the transformation um, all along. And I remember also lots That's of discussions true. we had about how much information should we share with Irina, who would then mm -hmm. repackage it and, and give it away to your um, increasing numbers of members. It was quite a live debate in our sales uh, team. 
So let, let's put in the way that we are being the first one in, in, in intergovernmental organization that set the, clearly the, the pathway for that. And what is important in my point of view, that uh, when we come with something, in something that reflects the, 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 the complexity of uh, our membership. So it's something that uh, embrace everyone in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in our messages. So I think it's also a very, very relevant. I, I agree. And I think, I think to me, that's um, sort of forgotten in the name, International Renewable Energy Agency. The, the focus is always on that it's renewables and so on, not on the fact that you have 167 members, which, by the way, is much more than the IEA, and that you speak to governments and far more governments at a very different level to a company, which, you know, just for clarity, I'm not an executive at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, although I write for them, but that's a fantastic information provider, but doesn't speak to the same constituents that you do. That's, uh, that's correct. This is the effect that, uh, that uh, is the answer to your question. Uh, in this moment, we are only the only one that have direct access to 167 Ministry of Energy or Foreign Affairs in, uh, in 167 countries and not in our accession country. So that's uh, this, uh, a unique uh, capacity. So for uh, also new uh, items that are relevant for the energy transition, like uh, the mineral, the critical mineral, the rare rate, when we talk about green hydrogen standard and other, the uh, fact that the, the, the agency is global, pose uh, ARENA in the best position to work on this aspect because it's, it's covering all the different interests and everyone can contribute to our work. We have uh, launched this way to work that we call collaborative framework for all the areas that are relevant for the energy transition. We are governments, stakeholders, private sector, private companies can come and be part of the discussion. This is a, a really a unique uh, way to deal uh, with uh, all these topics. Let people sharing experience, set working group, going deep, have the possibility to, to uh, read uh, in advance our report, contributing to, to it. One of the examples that I'm very proud of it when we have been uh, working for, it was the first time that we are working for uh, a paper for the, for the G20, Italian G20 on, uh, on offshore wind. And we have uh, uh, given the paper to our collaborative framework, so to all our membership to comment. So we have been able in some way to produce something for the G20, taking into account the, uh, the opinion and the suggestions coming from our membership. And this is, I think, is uh, absolutely unique. Thank you. And let's push on the renewable energy part of your name, because you also have a lot of activities, core activities, um, separate from these big integrative reports that you will get onto. Um, but you've got core activities also around energy efficiency, have you not? And I think there was a, a collaboration with Denmark at one point. I don't know if that's still in place, uh, but talk us through why is it called renewable energy, but then you actually also do energy efficiency and kind of how, how do you square that circle? You know, uh, if you look to our General Assembly, so clearly our membership refers to us not 
as the energy transition as the uh, renewable energy agency but they refer to us to the agency that is dealing with the energy transition but you know uh, names are, are also a brand and uh, and also are very difficult to change so changing the arena in uh, in uh, making uh, energy transition uh, agency uh, i think is uh, is uh, is in some way no worth but uh, if you look to our work plan what the member state asked to 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 ask to do we are dealing with the energy transition and the member state also asked for uh, uh, setting, uh, establishing this uh, high-level forum on energy transition that we can convene in uh, in uh, in uh, in, uh, in um, every year. Naturally, first year we have a very, I to say, limited edition of this high-level forum because it was going to be virtual. And uh, but now, hopefully, uh, with uh, the, if the the uh, pandemic will easy as it's doing at least in here in the UAE. I don't want to say that because I, it's always a little bit hesitant, but uh, we are quite good Yeah, We can have a meeting in person now. Uh, the organization, the country, the logistic, they are very good. So they are really supportive on this aspect. So we can start to have a meeting in, uh, in person, hopefully. And then uh, we can have use of this high-level forum on energy transition that has been uh, in some way asked uh, to, to, to be established by the membership to make clear that the agency is working on all the area of, uh, of the transition. Okay, but now we are going to, um, I don't know, maybe get controversial, maybe not, um, because nuclear, if I look at the, your, those big integrative reports, which summarize presumably, although they're only scenarios, not forecasts, but they do summarize presumably your view on the transition and they don't include nuclear. So you've got, Hydrogen is in there, energy efficiency, renewable energy, electrification of uh, transportation, so on. But the one thing, and carbon capture and storage is in there, carbon removal is in there, but not nuclear. I mean, does that, does that, um, does that respect what you're saying? That this is the transition, but why be blind to nuclear? Oh, nuclear is, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is there. It's 2% in 2050. I'm looking... You you are firstly looking to this uh, to this uh, graph. Yes, that's it's not there because it was just two percent. But if you go a little bit uh, to to the more detail, there is a two percent of an. Okay, so let, let, let's move on to the world energy transition outlook because you're absolutely right that I pulled a chart from that to to uh, to make my baseless, as it turns out, accusation of ignoring nuclear. Um, but that is a chart, as you say, uh, from the know, World Energy Transition Outlook. Yeah. I don't feel that as an accusation. <laughs> no, but, um, but let's come back to the 2%. Let's talk about the transition outlook. Um, and because that's really, you know, you could use that as a way of describing what you, th how you think the transition would need to play out to get to the one and a half degrees uh, and you very much focus on 2030, do you not, in that report? Right, you are completely right. And there is a, uh, uh, the reason is very simple, because now everyone, everyone agree that we, if we don't show results before 2030, we can forget the 1.5 and even the two degrees. Is what we say very clearly, 
in our uh, last World Energy Transition Outlook. So we say very clearly we are not in track, on track with, uh, with uh, where we should be uh, to achieve the Paris Agreement goals. And uh, we say if we don't change dramatically, but dramatically, our way to produce and consume energy, the, the 1.5 is very close to vanish and even the two degrees. And uh, I should say that we have been very courageous to come with, uh, with that, but we based our assessment just on numbers. Uh, we couldn't uh, make our ops uh, obscure the numbers. <laughs> the numbers are there, they're easy to read. And uh, uh, just uh, a, a few weeks after uh, our report, the, also the, the IPCC came with a similar conclusion. So just to give you an example on the numbers. So renewable installed capacity is breaking uh, records year after year. In the last two years, we installed for each year 260 gigawatts. This means uh, making five, four are for renewable and one are for the old uh, generation uh, capacity. So it's clear where we are going. But the fact is that if you want to get the reduction in CO2 emission that we need in 2030, we have this number to be three times more. So we need to go to 800 gigawatt installed each year from now to 2030. If we want hopes to stay on the 1.5 uh, degree pathway, these are numbers, it's not opinion, no? So we're trying to make this, uh, this uh, message very, very strong. It has been received, but we have to see how this will unfold. But naturally, the situation, from our point of view, uh, requires dramatic efforts. Francesco, let me push you on that, though. Um, as we speak, wind and solar have had this extraordinary two decades, and I've been privileged to be an analyst over the last couple of decades, watching them go from a standing start, enormous investment, enormous policy support, enormous societal support, and they currently deliver something around 13, 14% of global electricity. Incredible from a standing start. But since electricity is only 20% of society's energy needs, that means that really wind and solar are only at 3%, meeting 3% of energy needs of society after these two decades. So your transition outlook says that renewables are going to do 25% of the work. Is that realistic? I mean, should we at some point admit that for all that we would like that to happen, we love renewables, you and me both, the world, but it's not going to happen? Uh, I checked the numbers <laughs> when you were speaking. So as far as our numbers says, and our numbers are the numbers, <laughs> we can say that the share of renewables in electricity generation in the recent year has been 26%. Okay, but and that includes, that includes large-scale yeah, yeah. hydro, of course, which is not yeah. growing almost at all. We, we like always to talk about uh, 
the renewables as an holistic system. No? And uh, in our scenario, it's supposed to go to be 90% of the electricity generation in 2050. And the share of renewables in final energy consumption today is around 16%, and there will be uh, 79%, so 80% in 2050. This is our, our numbers. Naturally, the, 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 the demand is very, is, uh, is, is the correct one. Uh, if it's realistic to get in, into this path. Naturally, uh, this is what we need to do. And we launched an alarm in our uh, last World Energy Transition Outlook that we are really risking to lose the 1.5 perspective shortly, or even the two degrees perspective, if we don't change dramatically the way we uh, produce and consume energy. That's, 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 that's where we are. And uh, we think that uh, it's still possible. Uh, the numbers show that uh, uh, renewables has been uh, breaking records year after years, but not at yet at the speed that is needed. So we have to balance what the private can do with the investment because we need the private to go for that. But we also have to be very clear on what the public can do. So surely the public can work on, uh, on the grids, ensuring flexibility, ensuring interconnectivity, ensure the balancing of, uh, of the system. This is very important uh, to have. So the public has to work with, with that. The public has to work on uh, building a demand for hydrogen and green hydrogen mainly. So there are, uh, they have to finally adapt the uh, legal environment that was fitting in uh, a whole system that was a centralized fossil fuel system to a decentralized system based on renewables. This means that also the legal aspect of the market has to be touched and renewed. And also when we talk about the business model have to be changed. So I'm going to speak uh, uh, in a few days on uh, hydropower and uh, green hydrogen. You know, now we are starting, once we were using hydropower for the base load, mainly. Now we are trying to uh, uh, move to a different use of hydropower, trying to uh, work on, uh, on the peak load, trying to work on uh, uh, feeding uh, hydrogen. But the, the risk is that uh, losing their base load function can also bring for a less use of the hydropower energy itself. So we have to work for a mar market that will ensure that the profitability of the hydropower remain. So there are things that has to be changed on also in the way we organize and regulate, uh, rule the, the, the contracts. So legal environment, business model, greed, all this aspect has to be public. Oh, if we all do this, and if we also work on uh, an international cooperation to be more effective on focusing on the things that has to be done, I think that's a, we have to hope that we can uh, we can uh, we can uh, uh, go to 
and reach and achieve the Paris Agreement goals. Naturally, the is very, very difficult. This has not been hide, but I think that's still possible. Right. And there's a lot that you say there that I endorse entirely. And I think that the, the system uh, nature of the problem, the fact that you need the flexibility and that hydro will play a role and hydrogen and so on, uh, and also the fact that you need the public sector, so the governments, the regulators have to create the frameworks. But you'll have to forgive me if I just push back once more on this question of the scale of the problem, because you say um, renewables has been breaking records, and it has, but really only wind and solar that have been consistently, and of course, um, batteries, but from an incredibly small base relative to the scale of demand of the energy system, the batteries are going to be fabulous for transportation, but they're not going to provide the sort of two, three weeks of storage um, or of um, ride through for really uh, weather patterns where there isn't wind and solar. So, you know, when you when I say wind and solar is 3% and you correctly point out that there's other renewables, hydro in the case of electricity, uh, biofuels, biogas, biomass elsewhere in the system. But, you know, the fact is that society is putting a lot of weight on wind and solar and the records and the growth is all coming from wind and solar. So I push back once more and ask, you know, is it realistic for, you know, even if you aggregate it up for renewables as a whole to go from 16%, I think you said to 78%, when the only bit that's growing that at those speeds is the wind and the solar and the rest of it really well, isn't. We uh, uh, naturally, you, you may know, agree on all our numbers, but our numbers say it is possible. And uh, also making uh, naturally the, the hydrogen working on complementing uh, the move to, to renewables and having also a, 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 an expansion of uh, the sustainable use of uh, biomass that we have, where we have to be very careful on ensuring the sustainability. But all this have to work together because yeah. naturally, and this also in our uh, conversation uh, where, uh, where we start to, 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 to chat, I, I mentioned how important could be every move possible uh, barrier or difficulties coming from the use of mineral and rest for the yeah. batteries. And I think the batteries are not only to be used by, for the cars, but they also can be used for the storage. And we have also the hydrogen that can be, can, that can be used for seasonal storage so we have to put all we have together, and this as the 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 the, the miracle of uh, of policies, if they will work, to put all these elements together because we see that where there are the condition, the private money is going fastly, and in efficiently. So uh, we have to be, uh, to say, uh, having as a first point of attention in our work implementing the commitments as fast as, as possible. And I hope that in this respect, the COP27 in Egypt could be very important for Africa. It will be the, the African COP. So we really think that so this idea of doing a new deal for Africa may come there. And then we will have the COP28 that will put together East and Ovest, South and North, Together, so we have to take profit of these two elements for abandoning 
the negotiation mood of the COP and going for the implementation mood, action, action, action. And naturally, again, uh, Michael, we cannot uh, hide uh, behind the curtain. It's, it's very difficult, but it's the, a race for the human race. <laughs> so we have to win that race. Right. And, and just to be very clear, thank you for that answer. Uh, you know, I, I don't suggest that the numbers don't add up, that the numbers are the wrong numbers. The question is really when you see these, you know, things have to grow by factors of three, factors of five, factors of seven and so on. Um, and, and we know uh, how difficult that has been with planning law and all sorts of um, all, all sorts of factors holding back. Um, that was only my I guess my question was more whether you're optimistic about achieving it not what it is i agree this is a perfectly good I mean, set of numbers always i know when i when i wrote a book uh, one of my book was this conclusion and say i was uh, figuring something to happen and say that uh, if uh, uh, was going to happen the answer was uh, yes i hope uh, but i don't think in this case <laughs> I, I cannot distinguish between the two Right, and uh, I, I, I wish to say that uh, we we can do it. Now, my own position, for in case anybody out there amongst our audience is listening, is I think we can definitely beat two degrees. So, in a sense, the Paris Agreement, well below two degrees, as long as one point eight counts as well below, then I'm fairly optimistic. Um, two degrees, one point eight, something like that. Uh, one point five. I have to admit that I'm, 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 I'm beyond one point five. I don't see the it. The problem is that uh, there is no one point one point eight today. Right. Oh no, and it doesn't make any difference today. We, it's the same things that you would do to get to one point eight as one point five. So it's an academic discussion. But I want to come in. There's a, a few topics there. We talked a little bit about nuclear because, of course. There'll be lots of people out there who say this is all nonsense because the only way of doing this is nuclear. And I, I don't know whether you want to comment on that or whether we should just move on because I don't think either you know, of us really. I, you know, naturally, the, the, the agency doesn't uh, uh, deal with, with nuclear. Naturally, we, <clears throat> but we, we collect the data and everything. And uh, <clears throat> so, on this, our position is very simple. We say that 2030 will say if it would be possible to achieve the Paris Agreement goals or not. The 230 will say, will give us the answer. So our point is that we have to use what we have from now to 2030 for making the change happen. Yeah. So, uh, I prefer not to enter in the, poly in the polemics on other but if we start today to build a nuclear plant, I was uh, uh, in Finland uh, a few weeks ago, uh, where they've uh, 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 opened, how to say, the, the new nuclear plant they built. They, it took 12 years. And we are talking about Finland. So a very efficient place. And the cost rose three times in 12 years. If you look at the cost of, uh, of uh, the waste recovery, and if you look to the administrative court in France, they said the costs are out of control. If you look at to the administrative court in the UK, so you must be uh, aware about that, 
they say that there is, the nuclear is not an option to fighting climate change. So these are all elements together that uh, let us think that probably we don't say we are not any ideological position. So, but for the time being, uh, we have to work on the technologies that we have. There is also an interesting work on, uh, on, on the fusion. Uh, I, I don't remember now the distinction between fusion and fusion, but uh, so having nuclear without waste. But this may come uh, uh, when we already know if the Paris Agreement. Uh, the question is not because uh, it's, uh, it's a nominal win. The problem is to avoid the, the very heavy costs that may come for not keeping the temperature, the resident temperature, into the Paris Agreement uh, uh, path. Right. So that's the reason for us uh, saying that uh, nuclear will not play a major role uh, in this first half of the century. No. I don't know if this is convincing no, you. It's, it's, it absolutely is in line with many of the conversations I have. I think I'm more positive about the need to continue to research, to develop, um, because if you want it to play a big role in the 2030s, you have to kind of start now. But what you said is very reminiscent of at least one conversation I nearly got into. A, literally, I was nearly attacked, I feel, uh, uh, nearly got in a fist fight because there was a nuclear executive on a panel that I chaired who wanted to spend his time on the panel not promoting his solution, one of these innovative new um, reactors, but he wanted to spend his time trying to persuade the audience that it was stupid to invest in wind, solar, renewables, energy efficiency, or anything else in the interim before he even had a product. And I kind of um, tried to move him on from that position and he got very angry with me. But it's the same position as- You, you know, that, uh, you have not to be disappointed because uh, yeah. if the guy acted this way, that way, I think. Yeah. I, I want to touch, if I might, um, on uh, hydrogen and then to talk about some of the current events, because we're having this conversation. We've So far, we've been having it in a slightly theoretical way. And of course, there's what's going on in Ukraine is top of mind. But if we can touch on hydrogen, what role, the short version, do you see it playing between now and 2030? I mean, given your focus on 2030 that rules out um, nuclear, doesn't it pretty much rule out hydrogen as well? No, no, not at all. Uh, first of all, because uh, uh, already uh, hydrogen has uh, uh, been uh, traded in this day. So we have already the first uh, ship of uh, blue hydrogen in this case, moving to, to east, so to Japan, to India, to other countries. Uh, and uh, you must remember that uh, when uh, we have been together and uh, talking about uh, the hydrogen, no? How, uh, and there were also some friends of us that uh, were working on, on that side, how the cost of hydrogen is getting lower and lower and lower. No? I remember, I make always the case, uh, I hope that uh, the, the, the people of Bloomberg will be not offended by this, but. Uh, uh, I remember that in the summer of uh, 2020, I think Bloomberg came saying that the green hydrogen uh, with $2 per kilo was going to be competitive in 2050. Then we came the same year as Arena, say that it was going to be competitive in 2030. And there were the companies represented that uh, we had uh, the pleasure to meet together. 
where they're saying, oh, look, it's already competitive now. We are exporting ammonia. In 2025, will be the most competitive way to, to. So what is important is to create the demand because now the question is not the competitiveness of hydrogen. The problem is to create the market for, for hydrogen. So policies has to be there uh, naturally for uh, uh, lowering the cost of electrolyzer. That could be okay, but mainly to create the market and create the market. So supporting the industries that may move for making the change for having hydrogen as uh, 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 we, we, with them. So this, this kind of policies are very important as are also very important uh, that uh, coming with uh, standards a certification that can make the market work uh, more efficiently. We as ORINA, we will start to work on that. Naturally, there are many that are working on, on, on that, but we think that uh, our global membership may provide for some product coming from us uh, more recognition, and uh, more readiness uh, to be accepted because the trade will be uh, naturally uh, a, a global network, global trade. We have explained in this, uh, in this uh, uh, report, you can see geopolitics of hydrogen, how we uh, foreseen that the market will be more regional than the usual fossil fuel markets because uh, the cost will be always uh, driven by the cost of renewables and, and transport. So we, we see that there is a, a, a large uh, preference for looking at the market will be more regional, but it can have an impact and can have an impact already now. So we think that uh, hydrogen could be uh, some of the game changer having already an impact in 2030. And your certification scheme, which is very much needed for clean hydrogen, will you also extend that to certify blue hydrogen? So hydrogen from natural gas? We, we are open to discuss this. I will be in, in uh, uh, Barcelona and, uh, shortly to discuss green hydrogen. Uh, and uh, I will uh, try to, 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 to make clear that Arena is uh, ready to work on, on, on that. And uh, we will see with our membership, we have a collaborative framework that is there. We already have collect, started to collect all the, the data that may allow us to do this exercise. And then we will ask the membership how far they want to, us to go. They already got asked to go for standard and certification, but so when we have to go to the final uh, tailoring of, uh, of our reports, uh, I think that is a good practice that we, we, we listen to the uh, yeah. um, membership. Although that will get you into a huge discussion about fugitive methane, which it will open up a, a whole new sort of uh, a whole new, I don't know, um, uh, ball of wool, kettle of fish, whatever the, the saying is. The methane discussion is very um, heated. But I, I want to come back to your point about we need to create the markets. I mean, look, the, the problem with this, you know, it's, it's very nice to this a picture of hydrogen. But the fact is, there is already a huge market for green hydrogen, right? It's called the market for hydrogen, which is already, um, it's about $150 billion a year. It is producing hydrogen for fertilizer and for refineries. It is all gray. It is all produced from fossil fuels. And 
Everybody who wants to talk about hydrogen, they want to talk about one subsidized cargo of blue hydrogen that went to Japan for whatever greenwashing reasons. They don't want to talk about decarbonizing the hydrogen demand. I'm playing devil's advocate again, I apologize. But they don't want to talk about decarbonizing existing hydrogen demand. It's always some hydrogen bus or some hydrogen scooter or some hydrogen uh, uh, you know, no, I think I, I think or some I, hydrogen generation, but never decarbonizing current polluting, emitting hydrogen. Why is that? No, I, uh, we have to be careful of what we intend for decarbonizing the existing uh, production of hydrogen, because the way to decarbonize uh, the uh, producing of hydrogen is producing by renewables. <laughs> So that, that so we have to we don't want to to uh, leave the open uh, open the door on the fact that uh, the traditional green uh, hydrogen they are produced with fossil fuel can really be an option. We think that uh, concerning the blue hydrogen that this could be an option, uh, especially for the country that uh, uh, have the they are exporter exporting the oil and gas. We are the can uh, maintain life in the economy through going from exporting oil and gas with uh, the gas with CCS they can uh, export uh, uh, blue hydrogen and this could be anyway an improvement that they, in a transition period could be very well received in my point of view right but but the, the that's the reason we talk about CCS yeah. in our in our uh, outlook but if you want to replace the current gray hydrogen, which is responsible for about 2% of global emissions, if you want to replace that with green hydrogen, just to do some triangulation, some reality checks, that would require every single wind turbine and every single solar panel installed anywhere in the world to date times 1.4. So we're not going to decarbonize the existing to to respond to your question because naturally is also this is a good question uh, we have uh, made our hypothesis hypothesis in our uh, transition outlook I think I'm, I'm not sure to remember the 30 percent of the electricity production will go for producing hydrogen so already there we we took into account, uh, how much electricity has to go for for uh, producing the, the green hydrogen. So the number that you see are already included uh, the part of uh, electricity that should be used for having hydrogen covering the 16% of total final energy consumption in 2050. Well, and I think it's another one where I'm sure the numbers add up. The question is the scale that's required. And yeah, I, and but uh, I, we have to figure out how, how to get there. <laughs> yeah, no, no, and, and forgive me, I like I say, I'm playing the devil's advocate because, you know, it's, it's, well, no, it's okay. such a yeah. vital, vital question for so many people. So I'm, I'm, um, uh, I'm, I'm really uh, appreciate that you're giving me this, uh, you know, the, the best answers that, that, that you can on this. And I'm just conscious of time, unless you want to go back to the question of hydrogen and scale. I'm just conscious of time. And I would like to ask the final question about Ukraine. Um, and this, you know, ghastly 
attack you know uh, on Ukraine on one of your members frankly by one of your other members I, I suspect uh, both of them are members of yours not that that's necessarily uh, relevant but we have this situation it looks like at the same time as everything you talked about in your world energy transition outlook the world is also now trying to get off Russian oil and gas on an accelerated time frame now does that speed up the transition? by reinforcing the need to get off oil and gas, or does it slow it down by distracting everybody and forcing them to invest in oil and gas in friendly nations, because now it's no longer acceptable to buy it from Russia. So there's more investment going to happen domestically in the US, in Canada, in the UK, uh, and around the world, are we going to be putting that money into oil and gas and potentially locking ourselves in? So Ukraine conflict, accelerator or decelerator of the transition? <laughs> that's, that's a very good question. So naturally, in the, in the short term, uh, it may have an impact and not a positive impact. But immediately after, I think that it could be really an accelerator of uh, the move to the energy transition. So naturally, we have to be very careful on, on this. Much depends on, uh, on um, the policies that governments will put in place. We were saying, for example, talking about the COVID, you know, we had to spend the money to recover in a way to accelerate the energy transition. The fact is that the money spent for recovering from COVID less than two digits, so no, less than 10% went to the energy transition. And we were all agreeing that we had to link the short-term to the long-term response. Here, uh, I think that uh, the, uh, the chances that we can go for an acceleration of the transition are more evident. Uh, and because uh, governments are also where there was not a, a strong climate on or environmental approach to the energy transition. Now they look also to the side of the energy security. We are naturally uh, uh, investing in uh, renewables uh, may provide uh, more independence. This is what we, we, we wrote in the, in the report there. So how the, uh, the hydrogen and renewables can play an important role for having less dependency from other countries. Today, 80% of our countries are net importer of oil and gas, 80%. And naturally, they are dependent. But we have seen this along the years, from when I was a study in the university, that the price of fossil fuel has been already impacting on the way the economies were working and other. So there is a, a big, I think understanding that going for debt may ensure uh, to be more resilient uh, on different kinds of shocks. So this will be really another uh, adding reason for speed up. So not only the climate uh, aspect, and we also say that uh, it's not only climate because it's also economy. We will have more GDP, it's more social impact. We will have more jobs with the energy transition, but we can have more resilience in the energy system. And this could be another really strength for accelerating the path.
Okay, thank you. So short term, perhaps uh, Ukraine does distract a bit of attention and financial flows, but in the medium and longer term, then you see the two really not just for uh, not not just for climate, but for resilience reasons and all these social reasons. You see the two uh, actually acting together. Yeah, the, the fact is that uh, more and more uh, people is uh, realizing that uh, going for a new renewable energy, a new energy system based on renewables and complemented, as we say, by hydrogen and green hydrogen mainly and sustainable biomass will ensure more resilience and uh, supporting economic growth, empl- employment. So I think now we are all very close to be convinced that that's the way. Very good. Francesco, it's been an enormous pleasure. Um, you can see exactly, I think the audience will understand exactly why you're the diplomat and I'm not, uh, but I hope that I've uh, helped to air some of the very difficult conversations that we have to have around these topics, around scale and speed and, and distraction from world events and so on. Michael, I, I don't want to upset you, but I'm not a diplomat. I'm an economist. Oh, okay, but you did well. You have a, <laughs> you, you worked. I just know that you've worked on, you know, on on the Aarhus Convention. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. And, that's good. Yeah, and yeah. so on, so on. I, I, you, you, you're a cross dresser, diplom- economics and diplomacy, but above all, a fantastic advocate for renewable energy and the work of Irina. I look forward to. Um, Continuing conversations with you, you talked about Sharm el-Sheikh, COP27, and of course, COP28, which is in the UAE, where you are right uh, now. And uh, hopefully we will get time to tease out these issues in more and more detail over the next couple of years. Great pleasure. Thank you, Francesco. Thank you very, very much. Grazie. Grazie molte. Ciao. So that was Francesco La Camera, Director General of IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency. My guest next week on Cleaning Up is Patrick Greichen. He's State Secretary at the German Federal Ministry of Economic Affairs and Climate Action and a former Executive Director of Agora Energiewende, which is a think tank working on the transition to clean energy. Please join me at this time next week for a conversation with Patrick Greichen. Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation.